a child's death that has haunted the town of Pekin for the past year. On November 18th, 13-year-old Robert B. was reported as a runaway by his mother. However, we have been in touch with the Illinois State Police and are in the process of entering information of a missing or endangered person advisory. And what happened to Robert B. brought people in Pekin out to search for answers themselves weekend after weekend. Thousands of leads poured into the Pekin Police Department. The search for the teenager coming to a halt on a hot July day when his skeletal remains were found. Ashes to Ash TV, The Disappearance of Robert B, Episode 19, Hard Evidence. So I think is what we've done with this case is we've gone through and we've pulled out a lot of theories that really kind of seem to hold some weight. And so now is what I want to do is take those theories and compare them to the evidence that we have. And when I say evidence, I'm talking more about the hard evidence. Does it line up with the timeline? Do the stories make sense? So really I want to start taking what we know to be hard evidence and in comparing it to these theories. I think we have a couple prevailing theories that we've heard and one is the one that Kendra first came forward with was her alleged theory and we also had the Pekin Police Department who seemed to name Keith Brackett as a suspect rather early on. So we really want to look at Keith Brackett and see what kind of ties are there and why the cops might have thought he was a likely suspect. So I think one of the first things I really wanted to do here is to take a look at the pieces of the ME's report that we have and the death certificate. And for this part, I thought it'd be really important to kind of call in an expert who deals with police paperwork more so than I do. And so I called Heather Ashley from Big Mad True Crime and asked for her assistance. It seems like every theory is based on a little bit of truth, but yeah. also has a lot of mistruth in it as well. And so it's kind of going through everybody's theory and picking out, all right, what did this person tell me so that I would feel like they were genuine or telling the truth? That was the truth. And then what did they tell me based on the evidence that isn't the truth? Hearing all of these stories, looking at the evidence that you have, applying it, checking off the things that don't make sense, putting the things that do make sense into a basket, and then putting together the puzzle of what's left over from all of these people to try and figure out, hey, this is probably what happened. That's actually a great point because as we continue on this journey and now there's a pretty substantial theory that we've been working off of, one thing that I like to do is to kind of go back and look at the things that are more factual, like the coroner's report or death certificate. Those are my wheelhouse. Exactly, and I think that's really important because if we go back and look at that, we can see if the theory that is emerging here is lining up. Enter Heather. Written statements, documents, coroner's report, autopsy report, crime scene photos. That's my wheelhouse. Together, we analyze the death certificate of Bonsai. One of the first things was the death certificate. Now, the cause of death on here says homicidal violence from probable asphyxia, which means that they have reason to believe to the point where the coroner said, hey, this is a homicide, which is hard to prove. Asphyxia is one of the hardest causes of death to prove when you do not have soft tissue. It's very 
easy to prove when you have eyes that show petechia, that have soft tissue with deep muscle bruises or marks on the neck or a broken hyoid bone or maybe signs of a stroke or signs that they had a seizure. There are all these after effects of strangulation or asphyxia that come into play that can kind of show you, hey, this probably happened when you have a body to reference. But his skull was found separate from the rest of his body, which means that you you do not have the soft tissue of the neck. You do not have the muscles of the neck. You do not have the skins of the neck. He was very significantly decomposed at the time that he was found. Animals had gotten to his bones. So you don't have that evidence that you're looking for to prove that he was deprived of oxygen and that is what led to his death. So for them to put that on a death certificate is really significant. They must have substantial evidence to convince the police department, let alone the medical examiner's office, to come to an agreement and put that on that document. Now that being said... So do you think that there must have been something else at the scene, like a broken bone or the way the rope or the other items that were found there were around his body. It really seems clear that that's what happened. Why would they have written that you think it didn't have like soft tissue damage? I think the most telling piece of evidence from the crime scene that would lead to asphyxiation or the assumption of asphyxiation would be the duct tape. Duct tape is generally used to either bind people or to suffocate people. In all cases, it's generally used when a person is alive. So you have to wonder, why was there duct tape there? Now, we know that there was hair on the duct tape that they picked up, and I believe it was about three inches long. If duct tape was only put over his mouth to keep him quiet, there should be no reason that his hair would be in the duct tape. Knowing how much duct tape was found would be really important, because I've done cases where duct tape was wrapped around in a person's entire face to keep them from breathing. You don't generally apply duct tape to somebody on any place where the hair on their head would get caught in it unless they're alive. There's no other reason. So you think about the evidence that was found at the scene and you think about, okay, at what point during the commission of this crime would this have been used? So when you think about the duct tape, is it usually used before death in a murder or after death in a murder? And it's almost always before. I have seen people be bound before to make it easier to transport their body because I hate calling it dead weight because it seems so callous, but dead weight is heavier than living weight because there's no center of gravity. Lifting up somebody who does not have a center of gravity is much harder because everything else is moving. I've seen people bound before to make it easier to transport their dead body. I've only seen it once and it wasn't their face. You know, it wasn't where their hair would get into the duct tape. It would have been more like keeping their arms by their body or their legs pushed up so you could easily maneuver someone. Yes, exactly. I think the duct tape is really important. I know a lot of people automatically assume when a rope is found that it was used to strangle someone, but a rope could be used for a multitude of reasons. It could be used to bind someone. I think I more often than not see rope used as a binding than for strangulation, but I have seen cords, I have seen ropes, I have seen a lot of things used for strangulation. But generally when ropes are used for strangulation, it is pulled, it's not tied. 
How many murders can you think of where a rope was used to strangle someone? Say like a belt, a rope, a cord or anything, and it was tied. It's extra time and effort where using an item to kill a person is generally done extremely quickly. It is not done meticulously unless they are subdued in some way. When strangulation is done with a cord or a rope or something, you see it wrapped around and pulled. You don't see it tied. More often than not, especially when you have the duct tape there as well, you think of, okay, when there's rope and duct tape, which one was likely used for the asphyxia that we see noted on his death certificate? And it seems more probable that the duct tape would have been used for the asphyxia considering there was hair in it. We don't have the soft tissue from his ankles or his feet to say he was bound with this rope, but we also don't have anything to say that he wasn't. Everything that the police collected seems to have been for a purpose. It doesn't seem like they collected a whole bunch of stuff that was miscellaneous and had no rhyme or reason. Everything that they collected seemed to have a purpose for I was impressed by how they cataloged everything and and detailed everything. I think both items are really pertinent to the case and probably I would assume why they came to the conclusion of asphyxia. Heather and I then analyzed the documents for the cause of death. And with the cause of death, initially you'll get a death certificate that says pending toxicology results. And then a medical amendment will be filed for the final autopsy or cause of death, manner of death. But this one doesn't say pending anything. So this seems to be the final death certificate post-toxicology, which if an overdose was any part of his death, you would have seen possible overdose or overdose probable or something like that. A mention of the fact that drugs were a contributor to his death, but you don't see that on there. And actually, yeah, let's stop there for a second because I think that was really interesting because it was really kind of buried in the documents that we got and kind of in the middle of a sentence. So even when I was originally reading, I had completely missed the fact that it said the toxicology report came back clean and they got that off a little bit of matter that was still in the skull. The dark black firm intracranial tissue matter within the skull is examined, collected, incised, and submitted for analysis and shows decomposition and is negative for tested drugs and poisons. I feel like one of our prevailing theories here is that there was either an overdose or that they gave him meth and he got so hyper that an accident occurred and then they finished him off. Both of those stories have him doing meth. So I have an issue with the accident occurred falling down the stairs theory because we don't see any note of there being any kind of skull fracture. And so you would expect there to be some kind of blunt force injuries to fall down those stairs onto a concrete floor. Didn't didn't one of them say that he like died on impact? It's gone from either he died on impact to then damaged and then was killed or that he had an overdose and then killed. So we can pretty much knock off the overdose because They did testing on matter within the skull that was still left. And it said it was submitted for toxicology analysis. And it tested negative for drugs and poisons and says to reference the toxicology report. 
And so when you deal with only remains and very decomposed remains, your options for what you can use for testing is limited. And so it was amazing that they found something that they could test. Let's pretend for a moment that the theory that has recently come up is accurate. If Bonsai had for the first time, almost all of those stories that are in that theory have him doing meth that night. Do you think that this could potentially eliminate the fact that he did meth that night? I think that, and this is my totally unprofessional opinion because I'm not a toxicologist. I think it could go either way, and this is why I say that. Because this was very decomposed matter still within the skull. And I think they did their best with it. Now, I haven't seen the full toxicology report, so I can't attest to what that says. They mentioned that it's negative. And is it possible that the sample was so degraded that it came back negative? Or did it come back negative, rightfully so? Because, you know, we've heard that he smoked weed, but the toxicology report was negative, is what it says. So, is it possible that he smoked this meth and then died immediately, and because his blood wasn't pumping, it didn't process through his body? So, there are a bunch of different directions to go with this, but I lean more towards... Meth isn't an issue here. It's not mentioned on his death certificate. So this kind of throws the meth use into into some thought that there might not have been meth in his body. I lean more towards there being no meth. I lean more towards there being no staircase, no fall. Because we don't note any broken bones in his body. We don't note any blunt force trauma being an attributor to his cause of death. It is asphyxia, which is probably one of the hardest things to prove when it comes to having just skeletal remains. But they felt confident enough to make that determination on his death certificate. With the information we have, we just see no evidence of any blunt force trauma whatsoever, whether it's a fall, whether It's falling downstairs, no broken arms, fingers, legs, skull fractures, or any of that. So this is really interesting because there have been a handful of people who have come forward and been like, I heard this story from somebody, right? And then they repeat the story to me. And that has included a lot of the falling down the stairs or somehow being pushed, going down, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then this most recent version that we have from Teresa Vansill although she does say in the very beginning that she's in the bathtub and she's having a vision, but then throughout the rest of the tape, she says, I was there, I went back in, all these theories, and then also goes into great detail about what may or may not have happened. But in her version, she talks about Bonsai having a seizure, and he was prone to seizures, so he had a seizure. Oh, that's right, he had epilepsy. And he did not have his medication with him. It would be interesting to have his medical history to see how frequent he had episodes of epilepsy to see if without his medication, how frequent you could expect him to have it. That would also give you a little insight. If he had very bad epilepsy and without his medication, he was going to seize that day. Or if it happened maybe once a week or once a month or once a year, it could give you a little insight into how long he might have been alive for them to notice that he had a seizure, or does she just happen to know that he had epilepsy, so she added it to her story. Right, yeah, that's what's interesting, the fact that she says that, because 
she made it seem more like he was just dancing around in the basement and then went into a seizure or overdose or something like that. So she doesn't even reference the fall down the stairs in her version of what happens. That's really telling. And he did from the people I've spoken to, I don't think they were like everyday seizures. I don't know how it would have been without his medicine, but their whole family has a history of seizures. And even like a neighbor had found him one day, I think he said outside the house or something, having a seizure. So I've heard stories from people in the community who have been around when he's had a seizure. So I think it was decently serious. And it seems like it was pretty acute and that maybe they weren't very great about having him take his medication as regularly as he was supposed to. With a 13 year old, you probably have to hand it to them every morning and be like, take this. And we already know from what we've heard is that Lisa wasn't always that mom who was gonna be waking up with you in the morning, making you scrambled eggs and handing you your pill. So I thought another thing that you were talking about, which I thought was kind of interesting, that there was still some tissue with his body that actually lends to the theory that maybe he was kept in a fridge or something else. Any temperature below your body temperature is going to delay decomposition. That's why bodies that are buried seem to be preserved a little bit better. When a body's left in the elements for an extended period of time, and I'm talking like not buried, you're going to see the decomposition speed up because you have the sun, you have the heat, you have the rain, you have animals and all of this stuff. So when there was that report that the skull had no soft tissue on it whatsoever, not even hair, when I've seen bodies that have been buried underground or in suitcases or in tubs or in barrels still have soft tissue or have hair still attached to the skull, I was really taken back and I was like, wow, he's been in the elements for a very, very long time and somehow no one noticed. The smell would have been significant and there were search parties going on pretty much consistently since he went missing and he was only 2.4 miles away from his house. For that smell to go unnoticed seems improbable. So I think the idea that he was not there the entire time is plausible. But when I heard that he might have been in a refrigerated setting, I was like, I just don't get that because this happened during cold months. So you already have the weather out there preserving some of his tissues. Whereas if this was Arizona in the desert, it would have been a much faster process. He's also not an adult, so it's going to be a little bit faster. The idea that he was preserved for any significant period of time, it didn't sit right with me based on how decomposed the media made it sound like his bones were. Now, there were also media articles saying that they won't discuss the state of his remains. Again, with the media, it's hard to say what's true and what's not. But now knowing that there was soft tissue left, I think it's more probable that he was preserved in some kind of refrigerated setting for a period of time, whether it was a refrigerator, whether it was a freezer, or whether it was just the snow and the cold. I still wondered though how people missed him for so long if he was out in the open. That smell would have permeated a very large area. There were occupied buildings around. Absolutely, the neighborhood is pretty full. There's some empty ones, but that's pretty full. I even talked to the people across the street and the woman who actually owned that property came by one time when we were over there. Not, not, she was very nice, but obviously a little overwhelmed. So I think it had just caused like a lot of people to walk around that person's property. But I can't tell you how many searchers I said to them, you've literally walked on the back of that fence line the entire way. 
And they were like, yes. And this goes all the way into March. And it's multiple searches. March is when the weather would have warmed up. So if his body had been preserved since November and the weather was starting to warm up in March, you know, the decomposition would have sped up the warmer the temperatures got. When he went missing, it was below freezing. And it went into double digits below freezing while he was missing. Illinois winters are no joke. You have the people who live in that area, the people who search that area, they would have smelled something. The decomposition process is rough and there are gases and there are, you know, bodily fluids. It's a really gruesome process and it has a very, very strong smell. And it's not just here. It is here. Well, yeah, and I think that's another really interesting point is from a tip for a group called trucks for kids they were out searching the day before so i just think it's really strange that the following day someone finds a skull in a yard it's too similar and it was too look at this this has to be related to a crime throw a mask in there i know i had never even thought about it from that point of view that someone could have done it to let me put it in a tote so everybody sees it it's all collected nice and neat two things going on at the same time here. I kept hearing about this tote and I kept hearing about a cooler. So then I was like, well, maybe people are getting them confused. Cause you know, a big tote can kind of look like a cooler, vice versa. But then all of a sudden I realized that they were two separate, completely separate entities. And so cer- certainly maybe people confuse them down the road, but there was actually a tote and there is very credible theories that he was moved from the refrigerator to a red cooler and sat in that cooler until the body stank. Now, how big is this cooler? Is it like a beach cooler? Nobody has said the size of it, so I assumed it was one of the big coolers. Now, Bonsai's very tiny. You would have to think about rigor mortis would set in when you die, and it takes about 48 hours to fully come out of rigor mortis, so he wouldn't have been pliable during this period of time. You know, you're not in rigor mortis for the entire time after you've died. It is a process that goes in and then comes out. But to fit him into a cooler, they would have had to move his body to get him into it. So one, they either would have had to have done it immediately and not had him in the refrigerator, or they would have had to have had him in the refrigerator for a significant enough period of time for him to come out of rigor mortis. And he would have been in a rough shape at this point and very discolored and probably smelled pretty bad and handle him to the point of getting him into that cooler which would have been a really involved process and it wouldn't be something any of them would have forgotten I'm sure they burned the clothes they were wearing if they did do this but to move a decomposing body from a refrigerator into a cooler and have to really kind of finagle it would one require time in between each and would require people who probably lose sleep at night and will for the rest of their life because of that memory. Because we're talking side-by-side refrigerator freezer. Uh, it was a refrigerator from the, from the base to the midpoint and then a freezer at the top, one of those ones with the smaller freezer at the top. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could have been in it. I mean, he's tiny, but I feel like if you had been like that, you could have maybe pushed somebody in it. That could also be 
what the rope was used for to keep his body in the position that allowed him to stay in that refrigerator. So I, I questioned that a lot. I wondered if some of the items that were found at the final resting spot of his body, I wondered if some of them were used to keep him in a certain position. That seems the most likely, I think, in my opinion, when it comes to the rope. So everything that I've seen that the police have put together or the medical examiner has put together, whoever, with this case seems to be pretty detailed and pertinent to the case. And so if they bagged something, it seems unlikely to me that it would have been for any other reason that there was evidence on it. You think of all of the things you would find in dense woods in an area behind an abandoned shed. You can imagine there's cigarette butts, there are old cans, there's wrappers for food. You know, there might be hubcaps or just whatever back in those woods. Those things you don't see on this. And say there was more than one. If you only saw one collected, why was that one collected? And then you think of why is there this piece in the woods anyways? So then you think about where did it come from and who would have that? Are there any players in this who are around that type of thing? Are there any players in this where this would have been in their house or in an area where Bonsai would have been? One of those things was a roofing shingle. Do you think that that means it potentially had some evidence on it or something? Is it possible? Because I've done roofing before and shingles are like Velcro. And is it possible that in transit he was put into something where there were shingles left for any kind of reason? Like, does somebody do roofing? Had somebody recently fixed a patch on their roof? Is this anybody involved have anything to do with shingles in their daily life because that's not normal that's not a common thing i've never been like oh shit there's a shingle in my yard you have to think why is it there and how did it get there and why was it collected because there are plenty of things that were collected where they could have collected a hundred more but they only collected those and so you're like what piece of evidence is on this item and they were really specific about why they collected each item. And so I don't think the police would have collected an item unless they thought it was pertinent to his case. When you look at the evidence, what doesn't fit? Why is this item here? When you look at the rope, why is this item here? If you look at the duct tape, why is this item here? If you look at the shingle, why is this item here? And so we can kind of theorize the tape and the rope, but now you have to think about theories of the shingle. Did it just happen to be there? or and happened to blow onto something, stay in one spot for so long that it wound up having a piece of a murder investigation evidence on it? Yeah. Or was it there the whole time? It got stuck to his body somehow, whether it was in the bed of a truck moving his body or something like that. I did a case where paint was on the body and this paint was in the back of a truck that the murderer had from his work site and the same paint was on her body as was in the bed of that truck because he moved her body in that truck so you figure out like how did this transfer to this scene from wherever it came from and when you deal with different occupations like that guy had paint same 
theory. It has to be carried from one place to another. So where did it come from? And it's tracing that specific kind of item back. If you found a surge can, who drinks surge that is involved in this case? Or if you find like a specific brand of cigarette that's not super common, who involved in this case smokes that specific kind of cigarette? It's like one more piece to look at. So everything's important and it's important to look at everything as if it's important until you find out that it's not. One of my goals with this case was to really have a fresh set of eyes looking at it. And I think it's time that we ask the Illinois State Police to take a look at this case instead of it just being in the Pekin Police Department's hands. I'm not making any judgment call on what the Pekin Police have or have not done. I just think it's time for another agency to take a look at this. And so I'm asking for the community's help to make that happen. And the first step in that is to hold a protest. Now the protest is a peaceful protest, so we are trying to get everyone from the family there and anyone who's helped out with the series there. So we do ask that if you are going to come that you remain peaceful no matter who you see there. Everyone's main objective here is to find out what happened to Bonsai and so my hope is that we can keep that in mind and hold a peaceful protest. This will be on November 21st, so Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m. And it is going to be November 21st, so please dress warm or appropriately for the weather that day. We will all be wearing yellow to kind of represent Bonsai, so if you have yellow, please bring it. And if not, that's okay too. We will be holding poster boards with messages for the Pekin Police Department to let them know that we want them to get the state's police help on this case. So please, if you want to come and attend, those are the kind of poster boards we're looking for that kind of say those types of messages. This is a really important step into potentially getting this case solved. And I think it's what we want to do here is see what kind of impact this has. So also, if you have any media sources that you know of, we're going to be reaching out to radio stations and TV stations. But if you know of anyone personally, please, please, please help us by getting them to come also. And then we'll see really what kind of movement we're able to get from this protest. If this doesn't work or is ineffective, we may then stage a protest at the state police level so hopefully they can hear what our desires are for this case. Up to this point, the community has been unbelievable in helping us take these next steps to hopefully get attention brought to this case. And so I'm going to ask for your guys' help once again. So please share, please come out, please bring as many people as you can. The more people we have, the bigger the impact that we'll have. If you want more details, please just go to the Ashes to Ash Facebook page and you'll see there the actual event. It has all the details in it, the location we're meeting at and the times and stuff like that. And then also you can reach out and ask questions there if you want to bring something or if you want to reach out to a certain media source or if there's just something you have a question about, you'll be able to ask there. So please share and please get this message out there. Ashes to Ash, The Disappearance of Robert B. is created by Ash Patino. Assistant Editor, Michael Howard. Associate Producer, Kate Giordano. Production Team, Generic Brand Human. Follow us on Facebook at Ashes to Ash True Crime. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Ashes to Ash TV. Interviews for this podcast are Heather Ashley from Big Mad True Crime, the podcast, and the actor who plays Bonsai, Barrett Hellick. If you have any tips or information, we can keep you anonymous. Please contact us at ashland57 at gmail.com. A-S-H-L-A-N-D-5-7 at gmail.com. 
If you know of any illegal activity involving the case, then please contact your local police.